Hey, I'm Lee from Dublin, Ireland. I'm Nick, Showtime Bellata from Rhode Island. I'm Blake from Oakland, California. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. There was a moment when the rock and roll star Huey Lewis realized that music could be more than a hobby, that it could be a career. It actually happened overseas. He was a young guy, just out of high school, hanging out with other travelers in Marrakesh, Morocco. You know, I'd play in the square and make four dirhams. And the youth house, or the Mukta's home for wayward boys and girls, where we were staying, which is what we called the little opium den we were staying in, frankly, was uh, was a dirham a night. And all you could eat was another dirham. And I'd made two dirhams. And it sounds silly, but a little light went off, and I thought, hey, this is okay, you know? This is working. It's bullseye. Coming up, I talk to Huey Lewis about his pub rock beginnings, his multi-platinum success with sports, and how he wrote songs for movies like Back to the Future and Pineapple Express. And he'll tell me about the time he snuck onto an airplane bound for London. As I hitchhiked across the country, a guy told me how to do this. Different times. Then, from free flights to free telephone calls. Find out how freakers use tones like those to unlock an entire telephone network. Heck, one guy did it just by whistling the right way. Phil Lapsley will join me to talk about his book, Exploding the Phone, the untold story of the teenagers and outlaws who hacked Ma Bell. They were mostly kids, mostly teenage boys. And, you know, the thing that they would always say is, we didn't have anybody to call. It was mostly that they were in it for the curiosity. All that coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite critics to recommend culture worth your time. This week, we're joined by Carolyn Kellogg, who writes about books for the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Carolyn. Hi, Jesse. Let's start with Walden on Wheels, a memoir by Ken Ilgunas. Uh, tell me a little bit about it. A couple years ago, there was this uh, article on the Internet that had this moment of uh, fame about a guy who lived in a van down by the river while getting a master's degree from Duke. <laughs> Do you remember this? Well, I certainly I, I certainly remember a man who lived down by the river, but uh, he was not getting a master's degree from Duke. And uh, I think it was on the Atlantic or someplace. And the article was really powerful, really well written. It was a guy who wanted to go to grad school, but he was in so much debt that really he just had to live out of his van, which he did. So this is the book deal that he got out of it. And it's very frank about student debt and, you know, Signing on when you're 18 years old for $20,000 in debt for your first year, not realizing what that's about. So then he sort of goes off to Alaska. What's interesting about this is uh, like the book Into the Wild where this guy goes off to Alaska and he's like really radical and living life on the extremes and he doesn't make it. This is an author who was much more circumspect in his decisions, which got him into a load of trouble but is sort of like he's sort of like the everyman version of that story. He's trying to find sort of truth and nature without screwing up too much. What's the most vibrant moment for this guy that you remember in the book? When he first gets to Alaska, he says very dryly that he stands up and says, "Yay, I'm in Alaska." And it's sort of like this corny moment, but he like downplays it so much that it is really funny. Let's talk about Kate Atkinson's 
Life After Life. This is a new novel. What's it about? Life After Life is hysterical, um, but it's also a literary fiction by a British writer who's well-known in England but not so well-known here. The premise is basically that uh, that of like Downton, like a young woman growing up in the early part of the 20th century in an affluent home. And so there's all the trappings of that, which are really great. But she keeps killing her. And each time she starts over at the beginning. So like the baby is born and the baby dies. The baby is born and lives like a minute and then dies. The baby is born and lives to be like a year old and then dies. The baby is born and then – and it's so – Sounds pretty hilarious so far. <laughs> well, <laughs> because you know she's going to come back from the very first pages, um, each death uh, becomes a little bit – there's a lightness to it. Uh, just like in Groundhog Day, it's not tragic each time he dies. It's sort of exasperating like, oh, here we go again in an amusing way. Um, it's about, on in one hand, like the way the decisions that we make affect our future. And it's sort of like Groundhog Day, but just writ very, very large. Another hand, it's sort of about writing. You know, like when you're a writer, you create a character and then you have to kill them off because they're they suck. And then you create them again and you get a little further and a little further. It's really actually very fun. Um, is it the kind of funny where I'm going to find myself actually laughing? I think in places, yes. I know that literature tends to be a little bit restrained, but this book is kind of funny. The way she just keeps killing her off, there's a real kind of glee to it. She keeps killing this main character off. And and sometimes when she kills her off, it's very sad. But sometimes when she kills her off, it's really, really funny. Carolyn Kellogg, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye. Thanks, Jesse. Carolyn Kellogg writes about books for the Los Angeles Times. You can find her writing daily at the LA Times book blog, Jacket Copy. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Huey Lewis was coming up on his mid-30s. He'd been a professional musician of one kind or another for 15-plus years. He was on the third album of his second band. And then it all broke wide open. In 1983, Huey Lewis and the News album Sports went 10 times platinum on the strength of monster hits like If This Is It and I Want a New Drug. Save a few drum machines, it was the same meat and potato sound they'd used to rock bars in Marin County, but now it was rocking stadiums in Japan. When it comes down to it, Huey Lewis and the News still just want us all to have a good time together. Sports has been reissued on CD and digital download. Let's hear a bit of another huge smash from the record, I Want a New Drug. Sounds like Ghostbusters. <laughs> what a coincidence. Ghostbusters. Huey Lewis, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. Good to be here. Um, we were just talking about San Francisco before we went on the air. You grew up in Marin County. Um, I, I think people might have some idea of what Marin County is now. What was Marin County like in you know, 1960? 
Uh, good question. Very blue collar, completely different. You know, uh, it was a, very much a Western place, and um, you know, blue collar. A lot of con. I went to all my schoolmates ended up electrical contractors or home builders and stuff like that. Not a lot of doctors and lawyers. Your dad was a doctor, though, right? He was. That's right. What kind of doctor was he? He was a radiologist. Because when you were hitting your teenage years, the the '60s with a capital S, the '60s as you know as they are remembered now, were just starting to happen. And Marin County and San Francisco were an epicenter for that. Mm. What what did your family think of all of that, and what did you think of that at the time? Well, my mother was a, was uh, sort of leading the charge. Actually, she was an artist born in Poland, escaped during the war, and bohemian in her makeup anyway. And so it played it really that, that sort of movement spoke to her. And my parents got divorced basically for that reason. My father, although also a bohemian, was a little more, had a little more sort of different plan. And so they got divorced, and and I was convinced by my dad to go away to prep school in 1963 and in New Jersey, oddly enough. And so I came back at summers and by 66, you know, the, the, the game was on summer love was on. And, um, so it was very interesting for me. I'd be in this sort of East coast prep school for nine months of the year. And then in California, the other three months. So do you, um, got into Cornell, um, but you didn't go to Cornell right away. Well, I came back home, uh, eager to go to Cornell. I was playing baseball. At this point, I was kind of a, you know, I was all sort of on the conveyor belt, if you will. But my father could have told, sat me down, convinced me that uh, he said, look, you're 16 years old. As far as I'm concerned, you can make all your own decisions. But one more thing I'm going to make you do, and that is don't go to college yet. And I pleaded, but dad, I'm going to play ball. I'm going with my catcher. Dan Noyes was also going to Cornell. And he said, no, no, no. And his theory was that people never really know what they want to do in life that early. And they get on the conveyor belt and then they, 35, 40 years old, they wish they'd done something that, that you know, they might could have done. And so uh, I took a year off. I went back home to tell my mother that. She had custody of me at the time. And she said, well, that's the first good idea your father ever had, she said. <laughs> and then um, I, she gave me a Bob Dylan record, says, the poets dig this cat. And uh, and and her boarder was a guy, you know, Billy Roberts, who was wrote Hey Joe. Actually, he was a folk singer, and he had um, a harmonica. He played harmonicas with a, um, a neck brace while he played guitar. And he gave me a bunch of his old harmonicas, and so I took them and hit the road, hitchhiked across the country, uh, went to Europe. Actually stowed away on a plane. I managed to fake a ticket and get up and get over to London free. And then I hitchhiked through Europe for a year and played harp. Okay, so we're going to go back to the part where <laughs> you said that you stowed away on an airplane yeah. to Europe. Okay. Now, granted, I am here in the present, and so I am imagining X-ray machines. And right, right, right. Which there were, there were none of that. No computers. There were no computers. There was no X-ray machine. No, no. What they did in those days is when you purchased your ticket, they put it in a jacket, as they do now. And the jacket, they wrote on it with a special silver pen, LHR for London Flight 75. And then when you checked into the boarding area, you gave them the jacket and they took the ticket out and left you with the jacket. 
And that's all you had in the boarding area. So as I hitchhiked across the country, a guy told me how to do this. He said, what you do is you, you know, you get into the boarding area early and make yourself kind of inconspicuous. And then they set up the podium at the head of the door and you're already in there. And you take, and he says, if you want to be real safe about it, you can buy a ticket and then, then just don't give them the ticket and, and write on the outside the seat over the middle a middle seat over the wing and then take a different seat so that if you get a different bad seat and if you get thrown out of that one, you say, oh, I'm actually up there. And, and none of these, the flights aren't sold out. You'll be fine. The only thing that's going to happen is they're going to, she's going to, right before they shut the door, she counts everybody in the, in the plane and then matches it with the mountain of check-ins they have. And she's going to be off by one, but they're not going to hold the whole plane up. They're going to assume that they made a mistake at the check-in. And then you're gonna and you're golden, and um, it worked. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up in London. I you you even ended up in in uh, like Morocco, right? That was such a. I mean, we would just we had sleeping bags and knapsacks, and we I would just play in the square. I mean, I'm in Morocco in in, in Marrakesh. You know, I'd play in the square and make four dirhams. And the youth house, or the Mukta's home for wayward boys and girls, where we were staying, which is what we called the little opium den we were staying in, frankly, was uh, was a dirham a night. And all you could eat was another dirham. And I'd made two dirhams. And it sounds silly, but a little light went off. And I thought, hey, this is okay, you know. This is working. And yeah, I mean, you, you were by that standard then a professional musician. Right? Exactly. And so then when I went later, you know, a year later, I went to engineering school at Cornell and I walked into engineering class. And guess what? It wasn't as much fun. So, you know, I, I went to Cornell for five minutes over a two year period. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Huey Lewis. He started out as a pub rocker playing with bands like Clover in the 1970s. In the 80s, Huey Lewis and the News were a multi-platinum success. A 30-year anniversary edition of their album Sports is available this month. I want to play a sound clip, um, and I guess I'll just have to advise the audience to listen carefully for the harmonica on this clip. Um, There's video that goes with it, uh, and... It looks like maybe the harmonica doesn't have a microphone, but uh, let's just play it and then we'll talk about it. You can just hear that harmonica in the background there. So that's 1973, I think, on a local television program in Redwood City, California. Jesse, you have done your homework. I only saw that clip last week because the guitar player, John McPhee, who got me into the band, and he just showed me that clip. So you, pl- you, played, with, you played with that band for a, a number of years, through the, through the 70s. I did. And had recording contracts, didn't, uh, put out a number of records, didn't have really hit records. Right. Um, but at some point... You... Yeah, that's very well said. <laughs> didn't have really hit records. No, we did not. But, I mean, you did have – at some point you got invited to the U.K. by Nick Lowe, right? Right. Yep. I mean, one of the things about uh, this pub rock scene that you had ingratiated yourself to is that 
its values, I think, were coincidental with the values that ended up being the values of Huey Lewis and the News, mm. which is to say that you know they were in opposition to uh, glam rock mm. and all of the other stuff that was going on in England at the time that was very ridiculous and bombastic. And they just said, well, what if we just played rock and roll music and wore frumpy clothes in clubs um, and right. bars and pubs? And and gave it and by name. the way, and, and by the way, thumbed our nose at the music industry. And do our own songs, our own quirky way. Sing our own. We use our own voices, even though they're not radio friendly. And I, you know, I had been, I had believed, been led to believe that my voice, big gruff baritone, just wasn't going to make it on top forty radio, which is fine with me. I'm going to be a harmonica player. And I, but, but now I, I see these bands. I go, wow, what a, how liberating that must be, you know, to not try and market yourself all the time. And then I saw the rock pile with Nick Lowe and Dave Evans, and they were playing Roots American stuff with Graham Parker. I went, wow, wait a minute. This is up my alley. I could, do, I could sing this stuff, you know. So that, that little kind of bell went off, and, and I vowed that if Clover ever broke up, I would just go back to my, you know, to Marin and get, and, and get my favorite cats and just play music at my pub. For the hell of it, forget the music business and 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 sing songs and because it looks so liberating to me. After a break, Huey Lewis talks about making the multi-platinum album Sports and writing songs for the movies Back to the Future and Pineapple Express. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported in part by IFC with Marin, a scripted comedy based on the life and podcast of comedian Mark Marin, exploring his relationships and career. This week with guest star Dennis Leary at 10, 9 central on IFC. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us online at twitter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis and the News are responsible for some of the biggest hits of the 80s, including the heart of rock and roll and the power of love. A 30th anniversary edition of their album Sports is available this month. I want to play uh, one of the singles from your first Huey Lewis and the News album, uh, which is called Sooner or Later, Some of My Lies Are True. Fun. It's a really fun record, and you can see how small that record sounds. I mean, we we didn't know how to make records back in those days, so it was a process of I I wanted it to sound live, quote unquote, whatever that is. But but well, the, that's uh, that's the sort of pub rock values, right? Right. It's right. That you're and exactly. one of the reasons that pub rock never broke big is because there were. Because it never worked on anybody's records. Uh, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Because we, what we, so I, I thought if we're live, what we got to do is charge into the studio and do a minimum amount of takes, and don't spend any time getting tones, and just go for it. Well, you know, unfortunately, it's a technological process recording this music, and you need to take time. You need to fake it into life. And uh, interestingly, you know, we figured out how to do that by sports. Half of these records are still on the radio now. It's hard to pick something to play, but uh, let's take a listen to a little bit of Heart of Rock and Roll. 
One of the interesting things about sports as an album is that it marries this aesthetic that is like, you know, I mean, we were talking before this interview, me and my producers, and it's sort of like, you know, like a Chuck Berry song or something. It's like, right. oh, this song is about love. This song is about how fun it is to drive cars. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. things that are just fun rock and roll mm-hmm. songs. Um, and t- to some extent, that kind of th- throwback aesthetic of pub rock. But it was one of the first pop rock records that had a synthesized rhythm section. Yeah, pro- uh, I, I'm not not sure. I mean, I, certainly Steely Dan, Hey 19, which is I, I think maybe 81 or something, was cut with a limb drum, limb drum machine. But but you, you've, you've hit on. I mean, the idea I thought our our little production thing that was um, to incorporate. To make a, a, a the cake to have a kind of a technological cake with the icing being saxophone, real old school R and B voices and saxophones and stuff, and I th- and the juxtaposition of those two things made it sound sort of the old and the new at once, and that w- that was our vision for it, and um, it w- it was if I say so myself, uh, you know, a pretty good idea at the time, and and kind of original idea at the time. I want to play you and Cindy Lauper on We Are the World. Um, let's take a listen to it. I mean, that's pretty good. You know, you're saying, <laughs> there's like every great musician in the entire world in one room. And that's still, there's never been recreated. You, they've gotten, a couple times they've gotten 65% of that. Yeah, I, I, it was an amazing evening. I mean. How did just... you, okay, so how do you even, did you like get a call from Michael Jackson? Like, how does it even happen? Yeah, no, our manager got a call from Ken Cragen, who managed Lionel Richie and Kenny Rogers and all that, and said, "Hey, we want Huey," and he fought for the band, and they said, "Sure, we were, you know, we were, we were having a great year," and so they said, "Yeah." So, I mean, interestingly, we had our whole band there, all six of us, which was pretty cool. And uh, it was just an incredible evening. You know, they didn't let uh, – uh, it's been very well documented, the evening, of course. But, uh, but it, it, and, and the course, in the course of one's career, you don't really meet all those people. You know, the, the notion that you could meet all those people in, in the course of your career is amazing, let alone on one night. Uh, who – I don't know. Who were you most excited to meet? Well, the one – I was – I couldn't introduce myself to Ray Charles. I'm so in awe of Ray Charles, and and I just couldn't. I just kind of hovered around Ray and uh, and observed him. You were and, hoping he'd see you and say something. I, well, I don't know, but uh, you know, and, and and Stevie as well. Stevie Wonder and Ray Charles, those two guys are just uh, brilliant. And and I I had a tough. I was, you know, needless to say, and I sing the uh, the line. I I, I you know I, I wasn't originally going to give a line. I don't think. And I, the next thing I know, Quincy say, "Hey, Quincy wants to see you." 
after we sang the chorus. And I came back in, and Quincy said, look, I got a line for you. I said, great. He says, Michael, sing it for him. There was Smelly, sing it for him. And I, he sings me the line, and I, he, and I sing it there for Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. And they go, great, let's do it. And now I get into the lineup with, you know, Stevie Wonder and Lionel Richie and Paul Simon and uh, Bruce Springsteen. And as we go down there, and needless to say, my knees are qu- quaking, you know. It was really heady stuff. I mean, it's crazy to think of you, a guy, who, I mean, you had been a professional musician for most of your for most of your adult life, but you had only been what you might call a really successful professional musician for like a year or right. something like that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And you're there with Michael Jackson. He's Michael Jackson. Yeah, exactly. Standing right next to him. We chatted. He was was very pleasant. It was extremely pleasant. We, you know, it was, um, it was amazing. I was pinching myself. When you think back to it, what is the thing that stands out the most to you? Um. Well, I remember. Ray Charles playing, playing. I mean, there's so many little great vignettes, you know. There's a, tons of them. I mean, I remember Ray Charles playing piano, and I'm again hovering over his shoulder, and he's playing this blues thing, bluesy thing, and he says, "Hey, Q, remember this one?" And Quincy Jones says to me, "Lionel Richie wasn't even alive when we recorded that song," <laughs> you know. And then, uh, and Willie Nelson uh, w- comes over, and we're talking about golf. Willie Nelson and I. And uh, and now here comes Bob Dylan, who comes over. He says, are you guys talking about golf? And I said, <laughs> yeah, we're talking about golf. He says, you, you play golf? I said, yeah, you know, sheepishly. Yeah, I mean, it's a nice waste of time. We put the clubs on. The, and w- <laughs> Willie says, we put the clubs on the bus, and we get out there, and we hit them. You know, it's really cool. And Dylan says, I'll never forget, he says, that's outrageous. I said, I said, I said, I said, no, Bob, Nashville skyline was outrageous. <laughs> this is golf. <laughs> I love the idea of this this man whose album was handed to you by your mother with instructions to go become exactly. an artist. Exactly. And you're trying to explain what golf is to him, basically. <laughs> no, no, not so much. Just trying to, I don't know, just suck it all up. You know, I was trying to suck it all up. I knew it was just... An unbelievable evening. I mean, need, need to say we we went till six o'clock in the morning, and then we went home to the to the uh, you know go home to your hotel. Well, I couldn't go to sleep. I'm not going to go to sleep. I didn't sleep that whole day at night. I, I don't even remember when I went to sleep. It's outrageous. <laughs> I just did a recording session with Ray Charles, you know Stevie Wonder, um, Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen. You know, forget about it. Michael Jackson, get out of here. I would have I would have just been like trying to find businesses that are open at six AM. So you could tell people So about I it. could tell people. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well what we did, what we did is we all can, got together and we talked I about have it. Some, can I have some uh pancakes? And also I just recorded with Bob Dylan, yeah. <laughs> Michael Jackson. <laughs> exactly. Listen. But you know they they did a Quincy Jones did such an amazing job with that because it wasn't that easy and you know to get corral all those people and 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 then when we did our oval we did the lead lines we had to pretty much get it in one take because uh, Humberto the engineer was blending one microphone to the next and you didn't want it to you know you want to sound there's an ambience there that you got to get and so we did it in kind of one pass and and the first pass somebody screwed the words up about the third guy in and then uh, Stevie Wonder didn't like his part and now they do about three or four 
you know, false starts. And I'm over here on the end. And Umberto comes out to fix the microphone. I said, hey, Umberto, can we just keep going, you know, so I can at least rehearse my line? I mean, Stevie Wonder, Stevie Wonder's got five shots in his line. And I, you know, I'm, uh, you know but, uh, but then they, they did one. And I, I remember the exact take that they did because it was so good. And we came all the way through us all the way and it was done. And, and then Quincy said, great, let's do another one. And I saw him look at Humberto and go, thumbs up to Humberto. Uh, and then he come back on the talk back and said, let's do another one. And Michael Jackson at that point grabbed me, my elbow, and said, uh, uh, they're not going to erase that one, are they? I said, no, 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 yeah, it's just something. He says, because I think, that, I said, yeah, that was it. When he says, yeah, that was it. I want to take a listen to The Power of Love. I was just listening to this song. I, I hadn't listened to it for a while. And I was reading about it. And I read that they called you and said, we're making this new movie. Um, and the lead character's name is Marty McFly. And we think you would be his favorite band. Right. right. We actually had a meeting at, at Amblin with uh, Steven Spielberg, uh, Bob Zemeckis, who directed it, and Bob Gale, who wrote it, and that's what they said. They said, so would you like to write a song for the record? And I said, yeah, but we don't write for fi- don't know how to write for film. How about we just send you the next song we write? Is, is my recollection. And then I think the next song we wrote was Power Love, but Zemeckis says, I, I sent him a different song first that he didn't like. I don't remember that part. And the way he remembers it is he, I sent him a song. He said, no, no, I want something... It's got to be more positive or something. I said, oh, you mean you want something in a major key, I guess. He says, I said, and Power Love was the next thing that came out. It's funny because uh, you, your music fits so well into those movies because they are, you know, they are about this um, kind of baby boomer fondness for slash ambivalence about the 1950s. And your your music at that time was both so much of that time. I mean, you were huge hit makers and, you know, your sound couldn't have been anywhere else. But at the same time, your sound was also in large part about the sound of the, you know, 1950s rock and roll, 1960s Motown. You know, it's very interesting. It's very, it's a very interesting point. And I think what that is, uh, to a certain extent, is that we were an audio band before a, we were a, before MTV, before music television. Um, and so my view on it was, and my dad was a jazzer, and we came from that old school thing where the idea was to write timeless songs. 
you know, and, and not songs that are that are age uh, that are time appropriate or, or sensitive, you know. And and so we, I, I mean, we consciously did that when you recorded the song Pineapple Express for the movie Pineapple Express. Um, did 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 Seth Rogen or uh, one of the other folks from the production just call you and say like I want one of those fun songs where you say the stuff that happens in the movie? Well, no, but I they said they wanted wanted us to write a song, uh, and uh, we had a little lunch meeting. It was great, and they and they said, um, you know, so I said okay, and I said I'll tell you what, I got two things in mind. And I'll, I'll, because I thought reggae, you know, it's all about pot. I mean, it should be a bad little reggae tune, you know. And, and uh, but they know they wanted up tempo, something for the credits. They wanted it specifically for the credits. And really, what they, the more I kind of queried them, they wanted back in time a little bit, is what they kind of what they wanted, you know, I think. And so, um, uh, at any rate, I said, well, I'll, I'll send you. I got two things in mind. I'll send them both to you. I won't write them up yet. I won't write the lyric and the melody yet, but I'll send you them. You tell me which one you like better. And they chose Pineapple Express. Can we play a little bit of Pineapple Express, the theme music by Huey Lewis in the news from the movie Pineapple Express? Mother, grab your chillum and get all your gear. We got problems. Gotta get out of here. But I got you, and you got me, and we're as high as we can be. So it's alright. Oh yeah, it's alright. It's not your fault, and it's not mine. I was just in the wrong place in time. Now there's trouble. Oh yeah, trouble. One of the things that amazed me listening to this song was, on the one hand, this this song doesn't have a, a few elements that uh, make you think 1985 from from the huge, uh, you know, uh, Huey Lewis in the news hits of the 1980s. You know, it's uh, I think live drums and there's a horn section, but on the other hand, it feels exactly like those records and. It feels like the timelessness of those records because basically what it feels like is, I don't know, what would you call it? A rave up, a party song. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like it's just like what people it's the kind of music that people would request at a wedding. You know what I mean? Like just songs that everybody likes. We used to call it dance music. Yeah. Music you can dance to. But what's happened, music's become segregated. Because there's so many avenues. You have your soul music over here, your country over here, you want, and never the twain shall meet, which is a shame. One, one nice thing about Top 40 is that it was an editing process. And so if you wanted to listen to a Huey Lewis News record, you also heard a Garth Brooks record and a, and a Commodore's record, you know? And so that editing process, if that thing made Top 20, top, it was going to be a good set. Everybody, there was something like for everybody there, you know? And that was kind of, that's, that's those, those hits. They're engineered for that. Well, Huey Lewis, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you. Really fun. Didn't hurt a bit. A 30th anniversary edition of Huey Lewis' album Sports is out this month. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR.
Support for the Bullseye Podcast comes from Audible.com, provider of digital audiobooks and more. Audible offers over 100,000 downloadable titles. Bullseye listeners might enjoy How Music Works by David Byrne. For a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership, go to audiblepodcast.com slash bullseye. Are you looking to escape your troubles? Hop on a boat with Maria Bamford, Mark Marin, John Hodgman, Dan Deacon, and a ton of other comedians and musicians. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for three nights of music, comedy, and yes, shuffleboard. Online at boatparty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, sponsored by MaximumFun.org, Splitsider, KCRW, and MailChimp. I'll see you on the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Voice communication is becoming a legacy technology. Young people use cell phones to send text and photo messages, not to talk. These days, we're connected by cell phone towers and the Internet. But 50 years ago, we were connected by telephone wires. It was a web of electromagnetic equipment in huge warehouses with handsets and switches, beeping and blooping instructions to trunks and lines and all kinds of machinery that goes clunk. And in the middle of the 20th century, some enterprising geeks learned how to speak telephone. They whistled and beeped long-distance telephone calls for dorm mates. They rang up the Vatican late at night and created something called phone freaking. It was a province of blind teenagers and future captains of industry. My guest Phil Lapsley's new book is a history of the form called Exploding the Phone, the untold story of the teenagers and outlaws who hacked Ma Bell. Phil, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you very much. Okay, so you've traced the history of phone freaking back to the mid-1950s, and it's kind of hard to say what the actual start was because there's always the possibility that somebody did this and just never mentioned it to anyone or at least never mentioned it to anyone who wrote it down. But how did the phone system work in the middle of the 1950s when someone figured out how to mess with it? Well, so what had happened was the phone company figured out how to automate local calls, uh, and then it realized its next big challenge was automating long-distance calls. So, you know, if you're, say, in Florida and you want to call somebody in California, you know, in the old days, you would have to go through multiple operators to do that. And the problem was back in the 1930s, the phone company employed about 100,000 operators, and they realized that by 1965, if their predictions were right, they would need closer to a million operators. And that just, you know, clearly just wasn't going wasn't gonna to work. Because every time you wanted to make a long-distance call, you would have to call the operator. That If you wanted to call from Florida to California, the operator would patch you through, you know, first to New Orleans and then to Denver and then to San Francisco and then to Modesto. Exactly right. And so as a result, you've got, you know, tons of operators plugging cords into jacks. And, you know, one of the interesting things as reading, actually, this is from AT&T's own history, is they talk about how, you know, back then operators were women. They were only women. And one of the problems that AT&T had is when they realized by 1965 they were going to need a million operators, they said, well, there just aren't a million women in the workforce, right? So this, <laughs> this just isn't going to work, right? Um, 
So what they set about doing was building these, you know, really complicated machines, and they were designing them in the late 1930s, and they had the first one deployed by 1943, and they had, it was a, a fantastic name. It was called the 4A Toll Crossbar. When you're a monopoly, you don't have to come up with very good names for your products. That's exactly right. Today it would be the Whammo 2000, but back then it's the 4A Toll Crossbar. And uh, and the, this is really, I mean, you know, the machine, the, the term machine doesn't do it justice. Um, this is something that took up the better part of a city block. It was filled with relays and steel punch cards and electromechanical equipment. And, you know, the phone company went on to build hundreds of these things across the United States. But what this machine had to be able to do is figure out, you know, how do we route your call from one city to the next? How do we figure out if an alternate route is needed because the first one was busy? How do we bill you for the call? And it also has to be able to communicate with the other machines because just like the operators might go from, you know, Florida to, you know, Atlanta to Denver, now the machines have to be able to do that and talk to each other. And the way they ended up talking to one another was using the exact same trunk lines, the exact same wires that humans talked over. It's just that the machines spoke tones to one another. So they, they spoke these tones. There was one tone, which was like seventh octave E, if you're a musician. It's 2600 hertz. And that was the tone that essentially indicated if a line was idle or if somebody had answered the phone. And then there were a bunch of other tones which sound a lot like touch tones. They were called multi-frequency tones. And that was how the machines communicated what digit they needed to dial. So if you wanted to dial a seven-digit number, you have to send these little pulses of these tones. And basically what they had figured out was we can set this whole thing up to work automatically with the lines that we've already laid as long as we use audible tones to control the equipment. That's right. So if we can teach the machines to, to quote-unquote, speak, right, over the same lines that human beings would speak over, then that's a tremendous cost savings for us. What they found was that uh, this led to a fair bit of trouble for them. Who was the first person that you were able to find who, um, who realized that the system could be gamed? The first guy that I found who was able to game the system uh, goes by a pseudonym. I refer to him as Richard Condon in the book. He also went by the the nickname Davy Crockett because he was king of the wild frontier. (laughs) He figured out how to take a whistle that he found at a Woolworth's drugstore in 1955 and how to modify it to make these tones that would allow him to spoof operators into thinking that he was another operator or maybe he was a a maintenance person from what the phone company called the test board. And from that, he could actually get operators to do his bidding. And that was uh, 1955 or 1956. So let me ask you this, Phil. There's this one tone, this 2600 tone, and in some ways it's the tone that leads to all of the other possibilities of phone freaking. Tell me why that tone was so important. Sure. So this 2600 hertz tone uh, is essentially on between two of these switching machines on a long-distance trunk. That 2600 hertz tone indicates that the line is idle. And then when somebody wants to make a call, say, from you know San Francisco to New York, um, the switching machine in San Francisco will take off the tone. So the line will go silent for a moment. And the machine in New York says, aha, San Francisco wants to make a call. So... New York just sends a, a brief moment of silence telling San Francisco, I'm ready. You can, you can hit me with whatever digits you want me to call because you want to make a long-distance phone call. So if we listened into uh, one of these lines that was not in use, if we you know, put, a, put a handset in, in, uh, you know, halfway along the line, we would hear this 2600 tone, which means like, hey, I'm, I'm ready for action. That's exactly right. It means the line's not in use. So 
once San Francisco had heard from New York that New York acknowledged that, okay, I'm ready, send me digits, then San Francisco would send out these little pulses of MF, these, these uh, multi-frequency digits, and uh, that would be what would be used to send the number. So then New York would then say, okay, thanks, and it would dial the number and connect the call to whatever number needed to be connected to. And so that's how a call would go through back in the day. The, the issue here um, turns out to be that, you know, if you were making a long-distance call back in those days, you could hear these tones. And that got a bunch of bright kids thinking about, well, if I can hear these tones, maybe the machines can hear me. And the first guy was this fellow named Ralph Barkley uh, at Washington State University. And he got the idea that if he made his own 2600 hertz tone, that would make, so say he's in San Francisco and he's calling New York and he's just dialed a call, the call's going through, then he sends his own 2600 hertz down the line. New York would hear that and think, oh, San Francisco hung up. But then Barclay takes away his 2600 hertz tone. And so New York hears that and says, oh, San Francisco wants to make another phone call. And so then if Barclay can generate these MF tones as well, he can reroute that call to New York to anywhere. So essentially, he can make, he can make two calls for the price of one, you might, you might say. Now, you think, well, that's no good because he's already paying for a long-distance call to New York, and that's really expensive. But what Ralph Barkley had the insight is, what if you first dial directory assistance, which back then was a free call? So essentially, he'd dial a, a directory assistance call to someplace far away and then use this 2600 hertz and these MF tones to reroute his call to someplace else. And in so doing, he'd be able to talk to whoever he wanted. But San Francisco, as far as San Francisco is concerned, he's only made one call, which is directory assistance. And directory assistance is a free phone call, so he's not going to get billed for it. I mean, that is like, uh, that is a stunning series of insights. How did he use this newfound knowledge? Well, this is the funny thing. As I, as I would talk to these, to these kids who did this, and they were, they were mostly kids, mostly teenage boys, and you know, the thing that they would always say is, we didn't have anybody to call. It was mostly <laughs> that they were in it for the curiosity, right? And I think we've probably all been through something where you come up with some theory like, hey, I bet if I do X, Y, and Z, the following thing will happen. And for a certain kind of person, once you get that idea in your head, it's almost a sin not to test it, right? You almost can't keep yourself from testing it. And so for so many of these early phone freaks, the initial thing was simply about, well, I think if I do this, I think if I throw this tone down the line and then do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to be able to make a free phone call. And initially, it often would start out just as, let's see if I can do it. Let's see if I can make it work. It's sort of, you know, why do you climb mountains? Because they're there. The, one of the big things that comes out of these early teenagers in the, you know, beginning of the 60s uh, is that because they don't have anyone to call, really, they start to essentially map out the phone system, either on paper or because... Um, some of these guys uh, were blind just in their minds. And it sort of reminded me of, I don't know, it reminded me of people uh, mapping out like dungeons in, in early text-based video games or so, just, just to creating a picture of this, uh, of this network for themselves. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. In the a lot, one of the ways that some of these people got involved in this hobby is it used to be, if you would make a long distance phone call, and the call didn't go through, 
um, you'd hear this recording that the telephone company would provide, and it would say something like, you know, the call you've made did not go through. Please hang up and try again. And then at the end, it would give this little number. It would say, this is a recording, 3141. And, you know, this is the story that just comes up over and over throughout my book is some kid hearing something that piques their interest, that makes them curious about it, and wondering, well, what, 3141, what is that? And then they dial a different call, and pretty soon they're hearing not 3141, but 5162. And they start working on this puzzle, right, just like you would try and solve a crossword puzzle. And in, in, it turns out that those numbers were basically area codes and identifiers, which allowed them to basically build this map of all of the area codes and where the numbers were and how the routing worked and all this stuff. And they just, you know, and exactly as you said, some on paper or for the blind kids just up in their head, um, they just became these these mavens of how the network was set up in the 1960s and 70s. What were the things that you could find if you were, you know, going blindly down telephone lines in, in the 1960s? Well, just playing around, one of the things that you would stumble upon was someone called an inward operator. And, you know, have you ever noticed, Jesse, that telephone numbers, at least in the United States, never start with the numbers 000 through 199? I actually have noticed that, yeah. Yeah. And so it turns out that those telephone numbers do exist. It's just that those are internal telephone company numbers that are used for special services. And normally from a phone, you can't dial them. But occasionally the phone system would be misconfigured so that you could or if you had one of these uh, these tone generators called a blue box, you could dial these numbers yourself. And so, for example, the inward operator uh, always had the number 121. And the inward operator is essentially an operator that would help the regular operator complete a phone call to someplace maybe that, that wasn't easy to get to. So, you know, one of the things that these kids would do is, well, you get to an inward operator and she would identify herself, say, as, you know, the Boston inward. And just as a joke, just as a prank, you say, hey, Boston, could you please connect me to, uh, you know, the Denver inward operator? She'd say, sure. So she connects you to Denver. At Denver, Denver, could you please connect me to Portland, Oregon? And then she connects you to the Portland, Oregon inward. You have the Portland, Oregon inward. And pretty soon you know, you've made a, you know, 6,000-mile phone call to the payphone just down the street from you just for the sake of being able to do it, just to see if you could pull it off. There's something wonderful about hearing these stories, especially before the 1970s when uh, the phone system started to get an idea of what they were looking at with phone freaks, of this kind of genial naivete on the part of this enormous corporation that, you know, that would lead an inward operator in Boston to just say, sure, when a teenager called them up and asked to be connected to Phoenix. It, it's true. It, it's true. Although, you know, the interesting thing there is that, uh, you know, the inward operators, the only people who are able to call them are either other inward operators or they're maintenance people within the phone company, right? And so there's sort of a lack of suspicion, if you will, because, you know, the phone company within the phone company, which was, you know, the largest company in the world in the day, you know, we're all one big family, right? And so if a call comes in on your position and it's a, if it's a, woman, it's probably another operator. And if it's a, a man's voice, it's probably somebody from the test board. And if the guy says, well, this is Joe on the test board, could you please connect me to, what are you going to do? You're not going to say no. It's, it, you know, it's something that happens to you, you know, X number of times a day. But it is, it is really interesting that, you know, there's, as you say, there's sort of a, a naivete that is, that is really kind of charming that they didn't have to really worry about this stuff so much, because as far as they were concerned, it, it, nobody ever thought that people were going to be trying to hack into their network. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Phil Lapsley, is the author of Exploding the Phone, the untold story of the teenagers and outlaws who hacked Ma Bell. So through the beginning of the 1960s, whoever was pursuing this odd pursuit was doing it by themselves or maybe with a high school or college buddy, somebody from the college radio station, somebody from the electrical engineering club, whatever. What led to these guys figuring out that there were other people like them in the world? Well, occasionally you might you know, randomly meet somebody. But there was one event that I think really did it for a lot of folks, which was there was this blind kid named Joe Ingressia. And he had been fascinated by telephones. Uh, he was born in 1949. And by the time he was three or four years old, um, he you know, told his mom he wanted to be a telephone man forever. He just loved the telephone. He loved listening to the phone. He loved playing around with it. And he had figured out, um, you know, by the by the uh, late 1950s, early 1960s, that you could whistle phone calls. Uh, and in his case, he was, you know, he was quite gifted. So he could actually just whistle using his lips. He could whistle this 2600 hertz tone and make phone calls. Because he had perfect pitch. He had perfect pitch and he had, he had apparently uh, good lips for whistling. <laughs> and, uh, and so he uh, went off to college. And in 1968, he was, um, he was uh, having a conversation with some of his fellow students at the University of South Florida and he bragged that he could whistle a call, and they said, uh, we don't believe you, and he said, want to bet. So they bet a dollar, and he actually whistled a phone call, and that turned into kind of this parlor trick for him. And so pretty soon, you know, he was whistling phone calls for his buddies on campus until he got caught. He whistled wrong, and he uh, ended up getting connected to the wrong operator who happened to be a particularly suspicious operator, and she ended up essentially tracking him down and calling the telephone company security. And so Joe ended up getting into some trouble. Um, he didn't end up actually getting arrested for this, but he almost got kicked out of school. But the key thing was that it generated a bunch of publicity. And so there was some television news reports of him. Uh, there's even a television uh, news thing where he's demonstrating to the evening news how to whistle a free phone call. And then there were a bunch of newspaper articles that got written about him. And that ended up being kind of this, this uh, nucleation point, right? It was the point where other people started hearing about this. And so, you know, you can just imagine if you're a well-meaning parent and you know your kid is kind of interested in this weird phone hobby, and then you read an article in the newspaper about, oh, this blind kid in Florida got in trouble for whistling calls, and you're going to say, hey, Timmy, check out this newspaper article. Of course, the first thing that Timmy's going to do is, wow, that's really cool. i got to get this Joe guy on the phone and talk to him, right? And so this network started to form um, of, of people. You know, some of it was through Joe Ingressia, some of it was just word of mouth. But by kind of 1969, uh, 1970, you had this kind of underground network of phone freaks that had, had formed, people who would meet on loop arounds and conference calls, and just they were essentially sharing the same hobby. What's a loop around? So a loop around is, is this amazing thing, uh, kind of a coincidence. Uh, the phone company had built these test numbers into its telephone network that were called loop arounds. And uh, you know, in a particular area of the country, uh, you know, it might be the last four digits, 1118 and 1119, for example. And the whole idea was that a, a person trying to, a telephone company technician trying to test a telephone line could call the 1118 number and then call the 1119 number. And those two telephone calls would be connected together inside the telephone switch. And so uh, he could then uh, do some sort of, you know, testing, measurement, whatever, to test to see that trunk lines are working. Now, that's a fine thing, and it's, you know, just some obscure test feature that the phone company built in. 
But the phone freaks found this and they realized that, well, what you can do is you can use this as this amazing clandestine way of meeting other phone freaks. And so you would call, say, the 1118 side of a loop and you just wait. You put the phone down, you're doing your homework, whatever, you're a high school kid, and you wait until somebody calls the 1119 number. And the only other person who's going to call this is another phone freak. You may not even know who it is, but you get connected together, and now you can have a conversation. And the best part of it is, you know, the two people who are talking on this thing, they don't know each other's names. They don't even know each other's phone numbers. They just connected via this anonymous loop around. And so it's one of these amazing things to me that, you know, the phone company goes and builds this kind of, you know, utilitarian and mundane test circuit into their telephone switch. And, you know, within a few years, the the phone freaks have figured out a way to use it as a clandestine communication system that the CIA would be proud of. One of the reasons that it was such a small hobby was because the phone company wasn't 100 percent sure it was illegal and felt like if they started busting people, they wouldn't be able to fix their technology fast enough. And it would just lead to way more people knowing that it was possible to do this. And so even when people were getting caught, they weren't getting prosecuted simply because the phone company was worried that that would bring more attention to this thing, that they couldn't fix this whole giant network in time. That's right. Because, you know, exactly as you say, right, if it's just if it's, uh, you know, 10 or 100 or even 1,000 kids doing it, Right. And the kids aren't, you know, spending hours and hours and hours making long distance calls because they don't have anybody to talk to. You know, that's a problem, but that's not that's not a terrible, terrible problem. The thing that the phone company was always terrified by is, well, what if this gets out? What if, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of people learn how to make these free phone calls? So, you know, this was this was a real problem for the phone company because they they had to kind of, you know, fight this fight this action of, well, we got to we got to stop people from doing this. But what we know is that if we arrest them. Uh, you know, that always winds up in the newspaper. And as soon as, you know, other kids read the newspaper article, well, then there's going to be more phone freaks, right? So, yeah, congratulations. You got one, but now you got 20 more to worry about. So in 1971, there is a great sea change. Tell me about that. Yeah. So 1971 in October is when Esquire magazine uh, publishes a wonderful article by Ron Rosenbaum called Secrets of the Little Blue Box. And it is an amazing article. Um, it is it is worth reading. You can find it on the web today. And Rosenbaum took uh, what was essentially the geekiest hobby imaginable, right? Playing with the telephone and building electronic oscillators and made it sound as if it was a cross between James Bond and an acid trip. And people would read this and just be just be completely fascinated by it. And for many of them, uh, they assumed it was fiction. And one of those guys was uh, was Steve Wozniak, and he recounts being in his mom's uh, at his mom's house, uh, reading a copy of Esquire that was on her kitchen table, and just being fascinated by the article because he he felt well, you know, for the first time, this is an article I'm reading that is about people like me, people who are curious, people who are geeks. But he just assumed it was fiction until he got partway through the article, and it slowly started to dawn on him: I think this is real. And he talks about how he picked up the phone and, you know, Waz at that point was, I think, a junior at Berkeley. And he called his friend Steve Jobs, who was a senior in high school. And he said, Steve, I think this thing is real and I got to read you parts of it. And I think we can build these blue boxes they're talking about. And so the two of them ended up down at the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center 
uh, in Palo Alto, going through the technical library, trying to find, you know, the technical manuals that would tell them what frequencies they needed to build. And eventually they hit pay dirt. And, you know, the, Waz describes them jumping around in this library, you know, screaming at the top of their lungs because they had found, you know, these magic, these magic frequencies. And therefore, what this article was about wasn't fiction. It was fact. So, Phil, you actually have one of these blue boxes sitting there with you. Um, can we hear some of the sounds? So what I've got here is a, um, a blue box. It's probably about the size of four or five iPhones stacked on top of each other. It's in a little, little metal enclosure with a, a little speaker and a keypad. And this is the thing that would generate these tones. And so there's the 2600 hertz tone, which sounds like this. And then there are the MF tones, which sounds something like this. So those were the tones that uh, the signaling machines would, or the, th- those were the tones that the switching machines would use to talk to each other and send telephone numbers. The meaning of phone freaking, I think, changed around that time. In addition to that kind of geek hobby and people reaching out to connect with one another, it gained this countercultural element. And I think Wozniak and Jobs always saw themselves as countercultural figures in addition to being geeks. Um, Do you think it was significant that all of this stuff was happening in 1968, 1969, 1970, 1971, 1972? Definitely. I think there was, you know, there was a cultural change going on that just happened to be kind of at the, you know, phone freaking was at the right time and the right place, if you will. Um, You know, I think something I was fascinated by was the uh, the yippies, right, which is sort of the the political arm of the hippie movement, if you will, the the radical left. Um, you know, they uh, they and specifically Abby Hoffman uh, kind of adopted phone freaking as a way of you know striking back against the man, right? About a, a way of screwing the United States government. And the rationale they had was, well, the government collects tax money by taxing long distance phone calls. And so the Yippies said, not only can you make long-distance phone calls, but you should make long-distance phone calls because by doing that, you're depriving the government of this telephone excise tax, which in 1971 was like a billion dollars a year. And so, you know, by making free phone calls, you were keeping the government from being able to send young men off to fight and die in Southeast Asia, right? And so, you know, it's just, it, was, it was just kind of the, the perfect timing in some sense. There was one other group of people using these uh, technologies that we haven't talked about, and uh, that was uh, criminals. (laughs) And not just telephone fraud criminals. People who had a vested interest in being able to make a lot of telephone calls without being detected and to make them for free. And that specifically ended up meaning uh, organized crime and particularly bookies who made and received a lot of telephone calls and were often found out or investigated through telephone records. Um, how did the fact that organized crime was involved in this help lead to uh, help lead to the end of this as a um, as a hobby for for the more pure of heart? Well, so the the organized crime and, and the mob had, uh, and bookmakers in particular, had a real incentive to use this phone freak technology like blue boxes to make free phone calls. So when AT&T realized this, AT&T also realized they had a gold mine because 
they had gone to the Justice Department and the FBI before and tried to get justice interested in prosecuting, you know, these these stolen long distance calls and met with a pretty cool reception. You know, the Justice Department basically said, look, you guys screwed up and built this uh, this long distance network that has this hole in it. And now somehow you want us to be, you know, your revenue Rottweiler, right? You want us to go after people who aren't paying for their phone calls. And we don't really think that that's a great use of our time. We're not even really sure if the law that you're suggesting we use, which was called fraud by wire, we're not even really sure if that applies. So then AT&T went back a few years later in the mid-60s and said, hey, organized crime is using this stuff. And so this is, you know, we can give you tapes of this stuff. We can basically hand you entire networks of mobsters, and you can use this fraud by wire law to go after them. And now suddenly Justice Department and the FBI thought that was a pretty good idea. And so in the 19, starting in 1966, there were a series of, uh, of raids, and they ended up arresting about 40 people uh, for, who were all bookmakers who were using blue boxes or these other boxes that allowed you to make free phone calls. Uh, and that ended up being argued for several years, but ultimately, uh, you know, the courts held that you know AT and T was correct, and that this fraud by wire law was was you know could be applied to these guys, and that in turn now meant that going into the 1970s, AT and T had a very uh, a very strong uh, arrow in its quiver because it knew that well this fraud by wire law has been approved by the courts, it does apply to people using a blue box, whether or not they're bookmakers, right? Whether they're phone freaks or bookmakers or whoever. You know, it, it gives them something they can really use against the, the phone freaks. So tell me a, about how all of this came to an end. <clears throat> so the, the analog age of phone freaking kind of started to, to go into its twilight in the, the mid to late 1970s. And there were a couple things, maybe three things that led to it. The first one was that the phone company had started modernizing its network. So if you remember, the reason that these blue box things work is because the tones that they're using for the machines are using for signaling uh, calls, long distance calls, are going over the same wires that voice goes over. So because you can hear the machines, they can hear you, and that's what allows you to use a blue box. So the phone company had finally gotten around to starting to modernize the network, and they were taking all of that signaling information and using it on a different channel. And so that new system essentially meant that the phone system was becoming uh, impervious to blue boxes. The other thing is the phone company had gotten a lot better at catching people. Um, ever since the Esquire article had come out, the phone company had become, they figured, well, look, the cat's out of the bag at this point. So we're just going to start prosecuting people when we catch them. And so we're going to send people to jail. We're going to find them. And they had deployed equipment through their network that allowed them to much more quickly spot people using blue boxes. And so you were a lot more likely to get caught by, say, the late 1970s. And then the third thing was not something that the phone company counted on at all, I just worked out this way, which is starting around 1976, 77, 78, um, these new things started showing up on the market, things like uh, the TRS-80, if you remember that, or the Commodore PET, or the Apple II. It was the personal computer. And the personal computer was really the thing that for a lot of people who would have been interested in hacking the phone, they now had something perhaps even more interesting to hack on, which was a personal computer. And you can play with personal computers, you can write games, you can even make money you know, writing programs for them. And best of all, it's not even illegal, right? Nobody's going to come and arrest you and send you to jail or fine you for it. And in fact, the two guys who essentially invented the personal computer, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, had gotten their start building blue boxes before they went on to make the Apple One and Two. That's exactly right. And, you know, Steve Jobs has a wonderful quote where, uh, you know, he's being interviewed and he says, you know, if it weren't for the blue box, there never would have been an Apple computer because the blue box was, in his mind, 
both one of the first projects that he and Steve Wozniak ever worked together on uh, that was, you know, a, kind of an interesting technological project. And number two, it gave him a sense of what was possible, right? The idea that, you know, these two kids could get together and for 30 or $40 worth of parts make something that just was amazing and delightful. Well, Phil, thanks so much for joining us on Bullseye. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Phil Lapsley's new book is called Exploding the Phone, the untold story of the teenagers and outlaws who hacked Ma Bell. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the Outshot. Welcome to Antiques Roadshow from one of the Southwest hotspots, Phoenix. It was given to me by a friend, and when I was there's this thing that people love about the Antiques Roadshow. One particular moment. If you've never seen the show, it has a pretty simple format. Someone brings in an item they think might be valuable, a, a book or a jewel or whatever. An appraiser asks them where it came from. That's pretty much always either a garage sale or a family inheritance. Anyway, they they never paid much money for it. They get a rundown of the history of the item, and then... And even in this condition... Wait for it. Auction conservative price... How much it's worth. ...might be seventy five dollars to $100,000. Which is great, great news, well, basically every time. And right immediately after that, right after the good news, is the moment that viewers love. Whoa! Whoa. That's, uh, that's a shock to me. <laughs> I was thinking, you know couple of grand maybe but uh whoa i would be putting a retail estimate on the piece of between eight hundred thousand dollars and a million dollars seriously seriously oh my god it's an <laughs> unbelievable investment for 25 dollars yeah. <laughs> wow nobody's eating off of it no more <laughs> a conservative number would be between a million and a million five hundred thousand dollars for this group serious i'm serious whoa well, I won't have to depend on just Social Security, I guess. <laughs> I love that moment, too. And I love the people, that cavalcade of set-it-and-forget-it perms and bolo ties and regional accents and, and all the rest. They're great. And the appraisers, these autodidacts, self-made members of the antiques aristocracy, people who've dedicated their lives to learning about swords or American pottery or tin toys. Those people are wonderful. Is it okay for me to say this? What I really love about the Antiques Roadshow is the stuff. Because there's no other television show dedicated to the beauty that human beings can create. The things we make when we're alive and leave behind when we die. And that maybe speak to what we cared about and thought was worth investing ourselves in. The special stuff paintings and vases and Egyptian revival bangles, all made by human hands reaching for something bigger than themselves, trying to create something that will outlast them. Even the guns with their carved grips and barrels are evidence of of a pursuit of beauty on a very human scale. I don't honestly care if it's a painting by a master or a cane carved by a man who probably carved only one cane in his life. I just want to spend a few minutes in the company of the beauty that someone who went before me left behind for me to enjoy. That's why I love the Antiques Roadshow. That's my outshot. 
course, you have the wonderful dedication on the back. A conservative estimate at auction would probably be about fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. No. <laughs> so, Mom, so. did you hear that? We're going to Acapulco for the weekend. <laughs> That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, our senior producer, Nick White. Thanks to Chris Berube for editing help this week and to Joe Burke at KALW for engineering help. Our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is provided by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is supported in part by IFC with Marin, a scripted comedy based on the life and podcast of comedian Mark Marin, exploring his relationships and career. This week with guest star Dennis Leary at 10, 9 central on IFC. You can find this show and all our past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.